2 Samuel chapter 13. Uh, I've had a heavy heart studying the passage this week with uh, murder, manipulation, rape, sexual abuse, revenge, deceit. I think this is a passage that comes uh, on the tail end of a promise that the prophet Nathan gave to David after he had committed his wickedness against Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. This is what the prophet Nathan says to David after he confronts him, he rebukes him, he's taken another man's wife, he's killed that man, and he's manipulated the situation so that she can become his husband. And Nathan comes to David and rebukes him for this sin and says this, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and has killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, verse 10, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despise me and have taken Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. See that verse 10, the sword will never depart from your house. He says, continues in verse 11, behold, I will raise up against you evil out of your own house. So in many ways, it seems like what we're studying in this chapter is the fulfillment, part of the fulfillment of what Nathan had promised to David just the chapter before. This is some of the consequences to his sins. It seems as though David's sin, although it's forgiven, these consequences are going to extend and David's sons are going to commit similar kinds of wickedness, manipulation, sexual abuse, murder. And it's even more disturbing and more tragic and uh, more dark, I think, in, in, in what they do. So this morning, I'd like to consider three things. First is the enslaving power of lust. Second is the destruction of hatred. And third is the need for renewal. You'll <laughs> see that in this passage. Number one, the enslaving power of lust. We're told Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Absalom and Tamar were David's kids, born by David's wife named Maacah. And Maacah was the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. That seems to be important because that's where David flees to. He's, he's fleeing to his grandpa on his mother's side after this evil. And uh, Geshur, this king of Geshur was the neighboring nation. So maybe David has some political intentions by marrying this king's daughter. And he has these two kids, Absalom and Tamar. David had other wives. Another wife he had was Ahinoam. And from Ahinoam is born this son, Amnon, and Amnon is David's firstborn son. So they're all, they're all related, they're sisters, but Absalom and Tamar are half-siblings to Amnon. Make sense? So Absalom, Tamar, Amnon, these are the main characters in the story, and we're told that Amnon loved his half-sister, Tamar. Gross, right? He was infatuated with her. He was so sick so tormented, so obsessed, so in love, if you will, that he became sick, made himself sick. He thought he couldn't have her. It seemed too difficult for Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend, a cousin, actually, 
named Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother, and he was described as very crafty, very shrewd, very cunning, wise, used in a negative sense. And he tells Amnon, here, listen, lay on your bed, pretend to be sick, and ask that Tamar is the one who brings you food that you need. When your dad comes to see you, ask him, can Tamar give me some bread? And Tamar's not going to refuse her dad. So she's going to be the ones coming in to bring the food, and he's going to eat it from her hand. Now, times, I think for us, versus the ancient Near East are different, right? I mean, how many of you, if you have a sister, would want your sister to feed you cakes when you're sick? I have a sister, would never want that. <laughs> so I don't know, does David think that this is a strange request, right? Was is Amnon's love for Tamar known in the palace? There's a couple things that maybe David was clueless. Maybe this was not as strange back then, but needless to say, it works. Right? Tamar listens to her dad. She, need, she needs some dough. She prepares it. She bakes the cakes. She takes the pan and she empties out before him. And Amnon says, send everyone, send everyone out from this room, away from me. Just want me and Tamar. And bring the food into the chamber or into the bedroom, into the most private room in the house. And he says this, Verse 11, but when she brought them near to eat, he took hold of her and said, come lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Just to acknowledge, this is a Gross passage, isn't it? And one of the hard things about studying through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is you can't skip over this stuff. Right? Preach topically, we could talk about David and Bathsheba, then we could skip ahead, and we could talk about the downfall of Absalom, and then we could skip ahead, and you could miss this. And many, many pastors and preachers, they do it intentionally because I have Bible software, I have sermons that I look at, what if people preach on this? There's not a single sermon on this chapter that I've found. It's like, thanks, Tim Keller. You can preach on this and I could, you could help me. <laughs> right, thanks, John Piper, right? But as we, if we believe that, that the scripture is breathed out by God, that it's useful for teaching, I, I am under the conviction that we have something to learn from every chapter of the Bible. And as awkward and as dark and as gross as a story like this might make us feel, we have something to learn from it right? Just want to acknowledge this is a dark story. Incest was outlawed in Israel. And uh, surprising to me, incest was actually common in neighboring nations. It, wasn't, it was outlawed in Israel, but it wasn't in the surrounding nations. Incest was listed as one of the unlawful sexual relations in Leviticus 18. Moses records this, God speaking to him. It says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. So even if incest was normal in surrounding nations, the Israelites were to be different than surrounding nations. Don't do as they do. Be holy and set apart and unique and different. And other nations in the ancient Near East, they commonly practice incest. They didn't see anything wrong with it but the Israelites were to be distinct, different. They were to have a counterexample of sex and sexual relationships. The society wasn't supposed to be marked by self-indulgence and uh, hedonistic sex wasn't to be viewed as this kind of transactional thing. It was to be used in, the, in covenant. It was to be used for the flourishing of men and women and healthy families and societies. And Tamar says, 
Such a thing is not done in Israel. Like incest is not done in Israel. Don't do this thing. And it would be great shame to Tamar and Amnon. Amnon would be considered an outrageous fool for doing this. Disgraceful act. It's, it's inappropriate. It's outrageous. It's don't do this wicked thing. And she says in verse 13, now, uh, now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. And maybe Tamar is thinking at this moment, okay, David's going to bend the rules, you know, or she's just thinking, my brother's got a hold of me and I'm going to try to do anything I can to get out of the situation, right? I probably would lean more that way. Don't do this thing. Speak to the king. I'm going to do anything I can to try to escape. Amnon doesn't listen. He refuses to reason. He doesn't heed her voice. He violates her. He uses his strength not to protect her, not to provide for her, but he rapes her. He violates her. He disgraces her. And then verse 15, strangely, then Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up, go. Now, R.C. Sproul, as he's commenting on this, he says, with, with keen psychological insight, the narrator notes that Amnon no sooner violates Tamar than he is suddenly repulsed by the victim of his crime. He hates the woman he wanted. Right? Like the husband inflamed with lust who blames their wife, hates their wife for their pornography addiction, for their affair. This is how lust works. I think it, the passage is showing us it doesn't lead to love. It leads to hate. I, I think you could even think about lust as a form of hate. When you lust for something, you're saying, what can you do for me? Right? When you love someone, you're saying, what can I do for you? It's a form of hate, lust is. It's all about you. There's a fable that goes something like this. There's a pigeon who was oppressed by excessive thirst. And he saw this goblet of water that was painted on a, a sign. And not supposing it to be a picture, he flies right into the sign with a loud whirl. Crashes the wings against the sign and falls to the ground, breaking her wings by this strike. She falls to the ground and she's killed by one of the bystanders. And the il illustration is to prove that the mockeries of this world are many and we might be deluded by things that, that as we pursue after them, we're missing the very joy that we looked for. And in our eager pursuit of these things, the, the vanity, they bring ruin upon our soul. We can see and hear an illustration of a pigeon running into a sign because it looked like water and think, what a dumb animal. I could never do that. And we can be cleverly deceived, though, by the things that we see that are mists, that are deceitful, that we're easily duped by these false allurements. We see the enslaving power of lust not only causes us to miss the joys that what we looked for them, but in the pursuit of those lusts, we bring ruin upon our souls. Steph and I have lately been enjoying watching the Amazon Prime series, Rings of Power. Any of you guys watching this show? It's on Amazon. It's the precursor to the Lord of the Rings. We've been enjoying it. And in episode five, the character Galadriel, she makes this statement, and she said it again in episode six. But she's talking about it. This, this statement is in reference to vengeance. She's... She's on a mission to avenge her brother's death, but the same principle applies to lust. She says this, one cannot satisfy thirst by drinking seawater. One cannot satisfy thirst by drinking seawater. You don't drink seawater when you're thirsty because actually the more seawater you drink, the quicker you'll be dehydrated and die. Lust is like a craving, thirsty 
person longing to have their thirst quenched by drinking seawater. It won't work. Lust is the craving for salt of a man who is dying of thirst. Amnon didn't love his sister. He lusted after her. And whether it was she didn't live up to his fantasies that were not fulfilled perfectly, whether it was because she didn't want to be with him, he's disappointed, he hates her. And he says, get up, go. When she said to him, now, no, my brother, for this, this, this wrong in sending me away is greater than the one you did to me. But he would not listen to her. And that was confusing to me when I read that. What do you mean sending him away is worse than raping you? And we're confronted with some of our own cultural values here, I think. Tamar is saying that the leaving is worse than the violation itself because in the Torah, if someone, as a woman was raped, they required the man who raped the virgin to pay her father a significant bride price and he could never divorce her. So if he, if he raped a woman, he was to marry her and never leave her. And the law protected women by warning men of the consequences of uncontrolled sexual urges. It was also assumed in societies that were very familial and valued honor that the young woman's brothers would ensure that the man who raped their sister would be a good husband to her. They would ensure that. It's not leaving. It seems very strange for us, right? This is what Tamar is saying, that after he had assaulted her, leaving would be much worse since it would ensure in this society that she would not have a husband, that her shame would be permanent. In other words, after someone was raped, they were to be married to take the shame away. She could still have kids. In in society, that was very much about raising a family and having a family. It wouldn't be shame forever. And she's saying, you rape me and then you leave me? My shame is going to be permanent. That's kind of strange for us to, to factor because our culture is frankly just so different, isn't it? This is what she's saying. And you see the hate from Amnon to Tamar. He doesn't even use her name. He called the young man, verse 17, who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence. In the Hebrew, the original language, it just says, put this out of my presence. It doesn't even say woman. You see the hate of Amnon, and we're about to see the hate of Absalom. So we see, I think, a story of the enslaving power of lust. This guy was so infatuated, so consumed, so sick, what he did, and then he hated her. And now we're seeing the destructive power of, of hate. Tamar, she puts ashes on her head. She tears the long robe, which would be a sign of her shame, a sign of her grief, mourning. She cries aloud. She goes away. And her brother Absalom intuitively says, Amnon, your brother, been with you. And she says, now, Hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this to heart. He's another reason. Don't worry about it. I got this. Absalom is determined. He says, I'm going to find the time, the right moment to enact vengeance. I'm going to make this right in my own time. Verse 21 says, when King David heard all these things, he was angry. That's all he does. He's very angry. Doesn't lead him to do anything. Verse 22, but Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister. So David gets really angry, but he doesn't do anything. And it might be because Amnon is the firstborn son. There's some favoritism here. He doesn't want to bring shame upon his son. Maybe it's because he's aware of his own mistakes, his own sexual relations in the past, his own lack of judgment, that he doesn't have the courage to confront him. Whatever the case, two years go by. 
Absalom's stewing on this. He's waiting for this. And Absalom invites King David to come and celebrate. It's a time of sheep shearing. This was a time of joy and feasting and celebration and partying. So David doesn't want to be a burden to Absalom, so he refuses at first. But after he's pressed a little bit, he gets the blessing. And even though David refuses to go, he sends his sons. Absalom presses David. He says, let all the sons go with him. And says, bring Amnon with me too. He says, if not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all, his, all the king's sons go with him. And this seems to be, to me, a second time where David seems to be a little bit clueless. Seems to be introducing some of the flaws of David that we'll see later in his life, a failure in his family. So they all go to this place that's 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem, Balhazor, outside of the royal city. And Absalom commands his servants, mark when Absalom's heart is merry with wine. Can we see the use of alcohol? Tried to be used here in the plan. When I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear, for I have commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. Like These are the same words that Joshua told his army going into the promised land. And Absalom is saying this to his brothers or to his servants to kill his own brother. See what hate produces. So the servants of Absalom did to Ab- Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. They're thinking, oh, crap, what is Absalom up to? Are we all in this? They all flee. And there seems to be, maybe it was a servant in there, didn't have the right report at first. He's the first one back. He comes to David and says, David, all your sons are dead. Absalom's killed them all. But then we have the the cunning, the cousin, Jonadab, who says, let not my Lord suppose that the king, that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. By the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now, therefore, let not my Lord, the king, so take it to heart as to depose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. Absalom then, he flees to his grandfather, Talmai, king of Geshur. He was there for three years, and this sets up the next part of the story, which will continue, the, the downward spiral of Absalom and, and David's family, further downward spiral of David's family as we saw the trajectory of Saul and his descent. We see the ascension of David and now his descent towards the end of Samuel, and we see the destruction of hate here. The hate of Amnon that brought shame to Tamar, the hate that led to the plan of Absalom to kill his brother, which led to further conflict and division in the family line of David. And we see in all of this, God is not mentioned once, as Stephanie said. God's not directing, he's not guiding. There's no word of the Lord that comes and says, do this. This shows us what happens when humanity operates and functions apart from God. Violence, destruction, the abuse of those who have power to those who don't. We see one son has his daughter, is raped the other daughter. He's murdered by another son. He's run away from his father. God is not described here as active, as present, as guiding. He's not a leading character of the story. This shows us what happens to humanity when we live in a world without an awareness, without an obedience to following the will and the decree of God. What happens when humanity acts on their own desires out of accordance with the word of God? This this shows what a godless community looks like, a community marked by abuse, using others, killing others, destroying one another, physically, verbally, emotionally, and sexually. And unfortunately, this is what we see throughout the whole storyline of the Bible. 
There's not just some weird isolated event in the story. The Bible is not about good people to try to be like. They all have serious flaws, most of them, especially David and his family. Humanity throughout the storyline of the Bible has abused one another or been abused by another. It started in the garden where Adam and Edom were, had this loving relationship with God and they abused it. They abused the kind rule of God. They abused the love relationship they desired. They saw it was good. They took what they weren't supposed to. It led to brokenness in their relationship with God, in the relationship with one another. It led to spiritual, emotional, and physical alienation. There was hiding. There was guilt. There was shame. And whether it's sexual, verbal, emotional, or spiritual, we are all prone to abuse others and be abused by others. And the strong use use their power. Throughout the storyline of the Bible, throughout human history, the strong historically have used their power not to protect and provide for others, but to take advantage of others, have used it for personal benefit. Those who are physically weak are abused by those who are physically strong. Those who don't have a voice are taken over by those who use their voice for a personal benefit. And in the midst of this world where we live in, that's full of broken relationships, lack of trust, lack of love, fear. We need renewal. This story shows us that, doesn't it? The world it needs to be renewed. Relationships of hate must be transformed to relationships of love if there's going to be any kind of hope for flourishing and unity in, amongst humanity and amongst people and communities. We need right relationship. We need a renewed world. Right? There wasn't justice for Tamar in the story, was there? She lived, it says, a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. There wasn't redemption for her. What she longed for was restoration from her shame. Amnon sending Tamar away after he assaulted her was, was worse than the rape itself because it would ensure that she wouldn't, her shame wouldn't be redeemed. No hope for her husband, family. And when you're abused like that, you can't get what's taken back from you. The CDC conducted a study in 2010 that found one woman in 11, or excuse me, one out of five to six, one out of 71 men had experienced and attempted or completed rape in their lifetime. The Rape Abuse and Incest National Network estimates that one out of every six American women has been the victim of attempted or completed rape. And they estimate one in 33 men. They, they note that every 68 seconds, someone in America is sexually assaulted. And they estimate that for every 1,000 rapes, 384 are reported to the police, 57 result in an arrest, 11 are referred for prosecution, 7 result in colony convict, felony conviction, and 6 result in incarceration. From 1,000. And while many who are raped don't ever get justice, even those that do, even the most free from corruption, the most honest, unbiased, fair justice system, it can punish crime, right? But it can't restore what was lost. It can seek to prevent future crimes through punishment and through incarceration, but it can't give back something that was taken. A, a murdered child or friend can't be brought back to life. A person's virginity can't be given back. A child's innocence can't be returned. Time that was taken can't be restored. We live in a world that's, that's based on punishing what's bad, but it can't give back what was taken. And the beauty of Jesus, the good news, 
The promise in the gospel is that Jesus is going to make all things new. You, you know, you can't put toothpaste, you can't put it back in the tube once you squeeze it out. Hear that phrase? Jesus can do that. You can't restore your innocence. Jesus can do that. The good news of the gospel is not only that evil and abusers and wickedness will be punished, but that goodness, innocence, trust, love can be renewed and restored. Hearts can be changed. Relationships can be reconciled. Communities can be renewed. British philosopher and writer C.S. Lewis tried to capture this in his, in his book, The Great Divorce. He writes this. This is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. Some of the sinful pleasure, they say, let me have but this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will spread back and back into their past and contaminate the pleasures of the sin. Both processes begin even before death. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And that is why the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except in heaven. And the lost will say, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. C.S. Lewis has a way of writing things that just makes me think. He kept like, I couldn't say that. He said, a mere Christianity, God, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but turning a horse into a winged creature. That's what God does. That's what Jesus' promise. The beautiful promise in the gospel is the promise for Jesus to make all things new. Promise of renewal, restoration, right relationship with God and with others. There is a promise that, that he will renovate, restore, redeem this broken world and take all of the evil, the futility, the wickedness, the pain, and the abuse out of it. Like a return to the garden. God walking with us we are naked and unashamed, free from shame, fear, lust, power, deceitfulness of evil. And we can trust that even as we look at stories of extreme evil like this, and even as this might even trigger painful experiences that we've had of sexual abuse in our own life, we can trust that God is going to work and renew and restore from agony to glory because of what he did on the cross. Amen? We can trust in this beautiful promise because Jesus was the first fruits of the new creation, the first fruits of God making all things new. His life, death, and resurrection is the assurance that one day all things will be made new. You can think about innocence being restored, perfect bodies, living without sin. It's, it's hard to think about because of the world that we live in. God the Father, the King of the universe, doesn't look down at sexual abuse and verbal abuse and emotional abuse and just get angry and do nothing about it. That's a beautiful promise. 
Our elder brother doesn't just get angry and kill the one who committed evil against us. Because if we took a look at our own life, we would know that none of us are perfect. And if our older brother would get angry at sin, he would have to kill us as well. But our older brother, Jesus, he took the consequences of our abuse upon himself. Jesus, as our elder brother, brings justice, and not a justice of vengeance at the expense of others, but at the expense of his own life. Or no one can say, hey, just forgive, right? Because no one who is seriously wrong will say, oh yeah, it didn't mean anything to me. If you're seriously wrong, something was taken from you. There's a cost. If you forgive someone, you're saying, I am going to absorb the hurt, the loss, the debt. I'm going to bear it myself. So all forgiveness and serious offenses is costly, isn't it? And Jesus doesn't just absorb our wrongs. He credits to us his rights, his goodness, his righteousness. He doesn't just absorb the cost. He doesn't just suffer the consequences. He doesn't just take our punishment. He invites us into a new life with him. It's not as though God looks down upon us and says, all of your sins that you committed, I'm going to wipe those clean. And now it's up to you to make sure you don't mess it up again. No, he says, I'm, in, I'm coming into your life. I'm going to have a relationship with you. The righteousness that I lived and had, I'm giving it to you by faith. So the life you live now is really just applying the life that you've already been given, becoming who you are. The greatest gift in the gospel, the greatest gift from Jesus is not just forgiveness. It's not just being declared righteous. It's not just being forgiven before a just and perfect God. It's not just being adopted into his family. It's not just the promise of future glory. The greatest gift of the gospel is God himself, Jesus himself being in relationship with you. And this relationship, this union, this communion with Jesus doesn't leave us where we were. God doesn't bring to us and just bring us into his house as Absalom did to Tamar and leave us where we can be desolate and despairing for the rest of our life. We can be reminded of our shame permanently. God gives us a new identity, a new relationship with himself and new husband, new partner, new covenant with himself. The scriptures say that if anyone is in Jesus, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. In Jesus, we have been reconciled to God. We have been declared right before him. We have established into a union with him. And we've been called to the ministry of reconciliation. So it's broken relationships with God that need to be restored and broken relationship with others that need to be restored. This is why we seek to be a community of grace. Amen? Because it's in a community of grace, it's in community that, that God provides a context for change. It, it's in a community that embodies this kind of love and grace that promotes healing and flourishing and life change. It's a community that's shaped and formed by the gospel where we can embody what is it like being in relationship with God. We can learn more what that's like by being in relationship with each other. By the way that we live, we treat each other, we posture ourselves towards one another. We can encourage and help each other in that belief by the way that we operate and treat each other. It's an amazing calling we've been given. So we want to be a church that not only preaches that Jesus can make all things new, that there is hope and healing for those who have been abused and mistreated and violated. We want to actually embody that good news. 
so that people who have been abused, people who have been violated, people who have been hurt deeply can find healing as they are in relationship with us. They can have trust rebuilt as we show ourselves to be trustworthy people. They can have experiences of bad, hurtful relationships be redeemed when good relationships, healthy relationships. We want to be a church that offers hope and comfort to those who are suffering and heavy laden, those who have had great evil committed against them. We want to give them hope that that evil doesn't have to define them. It doesn't have to keep them in the chains. Jesus offers a new way to live. We can demonstrate that life by the way that we live and invite them into it. We want to be a church that offers forgiveness and freedom to those who are plagued with shame and guilt. Those who in their mind have done such evil or had such evil done to them that they will never be defined by anything other than bad, shameful, gross, defiled, violated. I need to be punished for the rest of my life. We want to be a church that offers kindness to those who have been treated cruelly, We want to embody the heart of Jesus that we don't use positions of authority or power for our own personal advancement or the abuse of others, but to come alongside and to serve. You guys with me? Do you know this kind of love? We know that the story of Amnon and Tamar is a story that many in our community can relate to. They've experienced this. Are we offering this kind of love with Jesus to those that are hurting in our community? Do you personally know this kind of love? Are you enjoying greater love from the greater elder brother, the perfect and just King Jesus? Dane Ortland writes in his book, Gentle and Lowly, You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. He says, I will give you rest. His rest is a gift, not transaction. Whether you are actively working hard to crowbar crowbar your life into smoothness or passively finding yourself weighted down by something outside your control, Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest and that you come in out of the storm outstrips even your own. Jesus loves us, church. He doesn't use us and violate us and use his power for his personal gain. He serves us. And he forgives us and he hugs us And he makes us new. His love is different than ours. It's perfect. It's pure. It's unfailing. It's never ending. He loved you even when you were running from him. Our love, we have a limit, don't we? Someone crosses us too many times. Someone betrays us too many times. Jesus loved the very ones who betrayed him. He says, nothing will separate you from my love. He, He loves you knowing that you will fail him. Who loves you like that? Jesus is the only God that if you obtain him, he will satisfy you. And if you fail him, he will forgive you. Jesus is the God who, in the midst of a world of rape and abuse and assault and deceit and schemes, invites a different kind of way to live, a life of rest and love 
and peace and healing. Amen? And I pray that, that our hearts would be aligned with his, that we would look at a story like this and be grieved, and we would look out at the world and be grieved for the kind of atrocities that happens in this world of brokenness, of broken relationship with God and with others, but that we would pray, God, would your will be done? Would your kingdom come? Would we live in our neighborhood, in our workplace, in our community, like you really rule and reign? Would we demonstrate what a relationship of forgiveness and healing and peace and joy looks like because of the relationship we have with one another? And would God send us to those in our life, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, who are hurting, who have been abused, who don't know any other way, and we can say, come and see. Jesus is calling. He invites you to find rest, and you can find rest for your soul, your burden and heavy laden. You can come to Jesus, and you can find a different kind of love in him. Amen? That's my heart, church, and I, I hope and pray that this is our heart as a church, that we want to be a church who has the heart of Jesus for sinners and sufferers and rejoices in that heart as we learn together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that Second Samuel 13 is not the end of your word. That your word doesn't end in despair and violence and abuse and rape and evil. Your, your word ends with the promise that Jesus is coming again. That he's, he's going to make all things new. He, he came and started the work of redemption and restoration the redeeming of all things to himself when he came and he lived and he died. And we know that the kingdom is it's already, but it's not yet. We're waiting the, the final return of Jesus. We still live in a world that's very much similar to 2 Samuel 13. Women are used and abused. Children are mistreated. Those who are poor are oppressed by those who are rich. Those in power use their power to take advantage of those who don't have power. And we look at our community and we see, Jesus, please come. And we look at our lives and we, we recognize the struggle that we have in our own hearts to be selfish and self-absorbed and think about life in a lust-filtered way. What can you do for me? And we need you to change us, Jesus. We need you to show us what does it mean to be loved by you so that we can love others the way that you have loved us. What does it mean to be a community that's marked by Jesus? How do we reflect this love to those around us? We need your help, Jesus. Thank you that you, you have invited each one of us to a different kind of relationship, a restored relationship, a relationship where we can walk with God again. That you have taken our shame. You have taken our guilt. That in Christ, we can stand before a just and holy God rejoicing that there is, 
therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You took that, Jesus. We can walk in freedom and fellowship with you. We pray that your will will be done here in our church as we seek to center our lives on you, as we seek to proclaim and elevate you as we read the scriptures, as we see even a passage like this points forward to the need that we have for Jesus. And would you help us this week to grow in that understanding and appreciation of your love? And would you help us by your spirit to to show us examples and opportunities you've given us throughout the week to show this kind of love, this kind of self-giving love, this kind of other-focused love to those around us this week? Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.